1: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast.
0: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen Varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at star StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation
2: of Planets medallion. This episode is also brought to you by Rocket Money. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. It could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash mission log. This episode is also sponsored
0: by ExpressVPN go to expressvpn.com mission log right now and you can get an extra three months of expressvpn for free that's expressvpn.com mission log expressvpn.com mission log to learn more
1: mission log a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast episode 473 innocence
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion.
0: And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, looking for the morals, meanings, and messages contained within, and seeing if the whole thing stands
2: the test of time. This week, innocence. The one where... Who walks lands on a strange new world and finds himself I, in a father John? role? John, That's, uh, uh, yeah, John? yeah. Uh, I, what are you doing? I, I, I'm just—I'm getting into it. This is part one of my 348 verse lyrical poem about the events of the episode. Duh, 348 verse mm. verses. Um, yeah.
0: I like what I'm hearing, Mm -hmm. but if you got it down to maybe 200 verses, and then we can talk about this for the next stage show at Las Vegas next year. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
2: Okay. Fair enough. Fair. Fair enough. I tell you what, I'll, I'll work on that more. Why don't you tell people how to reach us in the meantime? Mission Log is a conversation about Star
0: Trek. Drop us a line at Roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And we'll have John's trivia in
2: just a moment, but first, a word from one of our sponsors this week, Star Trek Wines oh I am so happy with the Star Trek wines folks you know it's that perfect blend of having a product that I enjoy certainly I enjoy on my own and sharing it with other people but I also love the well what better way to say it the Star Trekness of it all it, it perfect reproduction props like what we've seen on TV. For example, um, I love that the Picard series of wine, Chateau Picard, you have multiple versions of that. You have the silver label 2401 edition. You also have the classic 2386. And many people may not have noticed that in Strange New Worlds, the 2221, all of these limited edition bottles that look amazing on your shelf mm-hmm. um, not to mention the Risen wines, uh, both from Enterprise and Picard. Oh, and I love this. I love that they go to the trouble of giving you those stoppers because they know how good the wines look. That a lot of these, they know you're going to reuse that bottle. So you get these high-quality stoppers to reuse that bottle.
0: Yeah, much like the Canard the bottle, which has a standard mm-hmm. stopper and then, of course, the on-display stopper. Because, John, you're right. Uh, Once the wonderful product uh, in these bottles are gone, the bottles remain, and the bottles are beautiful. And they are worth being displayed on a shelf, much like again the canard bottle and these new Ryzen bottles. And then, but of course, you have like the wonderful Klingon Blood Wine, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, along with yeah. all the uh, all the offerings that they have at Star Trek Wines. So do yourself a favor, visit Star com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen Varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at Star Trek dot com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets Medallion. And now, here is John with this week's
2: trivia. All right. That was excellent. Uh, uh, you're almost doing my way on that. All right. So trivia for today's episode, Innocence. We have a story by Anthony Williams. I think way back to Cold Fire when we mentioned that Anthony got the story credit on that episode. He worked in advertising at Paramount, and these are his only two Star Trek writing credits. So he had the story concept that brings us over to the teleplay, which is by Lisa Klink. And we've mentioned Lisa as she was new to the series in season two and had already worked on a couple of episodes, most notably doing the heavy lifting on dreadnought. Now here she was given a pitch that was pretty bare bones about Tuvok and kids who kept disappearing. She honed it down to find the themes of Tuvok's fatherhood and mortality along with the twist that was inspired by, of course, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and, of course, returning in the director's chair, longtime Star Trek veteran director James L. Conway. Now, let's meet our guest stars. It's time to meet the Dreyans. In charge of everything is the first Prelate Alcia, played by Marnie McPhail. She started out in Canada as a child actor on the series The Edison Twins in the mid-1980s, and soon after started making guest appearances on American TV shows. Ellie Law, Space Above and Beyond, ER, and others fill out her resume, but we have seen her in our coverage of Star Trek thus far. She had a small role in the movie Star Trek First Contact, which chronologically was released after this episode aired. And remember how I've mentioned the past several times that Borg CD-ROM game that I could never play? Well, she's in that too, but I wouldn't know it because I still haven't gotten that far. Then the three Dreyan children we meet are Korin, Ilani. Elani, and Tressa. Taj D. Mowry plays Corin, and at the time of this episode, he had a recurring role on Full House. Uh, He has also done a number of projects for Disney, both on camera and in voice roles. Most prominently, he starred in the late 90s sitcom for The Mouse, called Smart Guy. Sarah Rain plays Alani, and speaking of voices for Disney projects, she was the voice of Sid's sister Hannah in the first Toy Story movie, And uh, she had a co-starring role on the short-lived Legacy in the 90s, which also happened to feature Casey Biggs. And later in her career, she appeared in the movie House at the End of the Street. Most prominently featured, of course, Tressa is played by Tiffany Taubman. Her professional on-screen credits all occur in the 90s when she had guest roles on Saved by the Bell, Dinosaurs, Mad About You, and the short-lived TV version of You Can't Hear a Love. Finally, from Voyager's crew, there's Ensign Bennett played by Richard Guerin, as he is credited here, also known as Richard Kazonyi. And he has just a few credits spread over the decades. Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, and JAG, to name a couple of those. Spoiler, this is his only episode of Star Trek.
1: If you've ever wanted an episode where kids ask a Vulcan, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You are in luck this week.
2: Prologue. One of Voyager's shuttles has crashed on a remote M class moon. Tuvok and Ensign Bennett survived, and they'll both be. Uh, oh, wait, uh, scratch that. I have some bad news. Tuvok will be fine. Bennett will not make it to the opening credits. Dutifully, Tuvok places a stasis field around Bennett's body, and then he is distracted by a rustling in the foliage around him. It's a kid a little girl named Tressa, who is just as surprised to see him as he is her. Then she is joined by two other children, stranded when the ship they were in crashed, and they are all grateful to see an adult who can take care of them. Act 1 that moon where Tuvok crashed is one of many around Drayan II. He was sent there to find mineral deposits needed by Voyager, and now Janeway and Chakotay are making first contact with the planet's leader. The Drayans are notoriously private, and Alcia, the planet's first prelate, is less than impressed with Voyager's show of technological power. She tells Janeway and Chakotay that her people made a point of eschewing such reliance on scientific advancement by way of a reformation, which led them to become isolationist. Nonetheless, Janeway carries on with her attempts at diplomacy. Back on the moon, Tressa explains to Tuvok that she and the other two kids were put in escape pods by the attendants before their ship crashed. Now they are getting anxious to leave, but Tuvok's shuttle is in need of repairs. Even then, the electrodynamic turbulence in the atmosphere could simply cause them to crash again, and it's what's keeping Voyager from being able to find them and beam them out. Nighttime is coming, though, and the kids are getting more anxious because that's when the Morak comes, uh, the being that takes you away when you die. Elani, one of the other kids, points to the cave nearby as where the Morak lives, but Tuvok can pick up no trace of another being— the three children insist, though, that it will come at night, and they can only see it when it comes for them, just as it did the additional two children who landed with them and were taken last night. Act two, Janeway continues the diplomatic tour of Voyager for Alsea. Next stop is Sick Bay, and the charm offensive of the EMH, who truly does impress the first prelate, not only by his knowledge but by his mere. Being the EMH being a construct resonated with the Dreyan philosophy that the body is matter and only an illusion. They value the physical body less by knowing that there is an existence on a higher plane, as it were. The prelate is interrupted by an incoming message, and when she returns, citing an emergency, she puts an end to the visit and any further negotiation with Voyager. She reinforces the Drayan cultural tradition of avoiding outsiders, and Janeway respects it. Voyager will go, after recalling the scouting parties that were sent to look for polypharanide on those moons. Only one of those parties can't be reached, Tuvok and his down shuttle. He's there with the kids, concerned that the two who were never met but are missing must have wandered off in the night. The three remaining children insist that they were taken by the Morak. The more frightened they get, they insist that they leave. Tuvok tries to calm them with an exercise and logic. They can overcome their fears with visualization exercises, and it works at least a little bit, long enough to get Tuvok some time back to shuttle repairs— The kids still manage to get into all kinds of hijinks, to the point that Tuvok tries to quiet them down with some Vulcan meditation. The kids do what kids do, though, and keep asking questions, some of them more personal about Tuvok's family life. A ship approaches, rumbling through the atmosphere, and Tuvok can only identify that it isn't Voyager. More likely, it's a Draen ship coming to rescue the kids. Tressa and the other two are awash with fear, revealing to Tuvok that it's not a rescue. Those Draeans want the kids to die. Act 3. The kids beg for Tuvok's help in avoiding the attendants who are coming for them, and he obliges by hiding in the dense foliage near the shuttle. A team of Dreyans, armed, search the area but don't find what they're after. Once they have left, the kids explain to Tuvok that this place is for the final ritual, and dre and kids are brought here with the purpose of dying. That's where the Morok takes them away. But the kids have been raised with the belief that the energy inside them is set free upon their death, and it should be a happy ritual. Tuvok's only comparison is the concept of a Vulcan katra, which he's not even sure he fully believes. With the kids now in danger, Tuvok promises to protect them and take them back to Voyager. But on Voyager, they're getting ready to leave. The other scouting party is back, but without word from Tuvok, they'll have to search for signs of his shuttle on that moon. The Draen ship intervenes, with the first prelate giving a stern warning to Janeway that the moon is their sacred ground. They need to transport the only survivor back and leave immediately. That's a no-go with the electrodynamic turbulence, preventing a beam-out or another shuttle from going to the surface. They'll have to work harder. On the moon, Tuvok continues with shuttle repairs while also watching over the kids, scared that if they sleep, the Morak will come after them. To help ease them to sleep, Tuvok sings an old Vulcan poem, Phaelor's Journey, and it does the trick— the next morning, Tuvaka is still at work in the shuttle, but Tressa shouts out to him with shocking news. The other two kids, Ilani and Corin, are gone. Act 4. On Voyager, they're still no closer to a solution to rescue survivors, but they can confirm that there are two crash shuttles and a total of two life signs where there used to be four. Those two Tuvok and Tressa agree that Tuvok will look in the cave for any sign of Alani or Korin, while Tressa stays in the shuttle with a phaser. She's worried, but Tuvok promises not to abandon her. In the cave, Tuvok finds children's clothes, but no sign of the kids. He shares the disturbing news with Tressa, and he promises that they will get out of there before nightfall. Meanwhile, the Draeans are sending more search parties, but there is a breakthrough on Voyager when they are able to communicate with Tuvok. He explains the situation with Tressa, that the other children who were there disappeared. As his signal weakens and disappears, the first prelate again contacts Janeway with a warning that she is to stay away from their sacred moon. But Janeway has had enough. She needs her crew back and will attempt a landing in another shuttle with Tom Paris, a tricky maneuver with the warp coils to ward off some of that turbulence. As soon as they launch from Voyager, Adrian's shuttle chases them down, and Janeway prepares to charge the shuttle's weapons. Act 5. Meanwhile, Tuvok and Tressa are preparing to lift off in the shuttle that's on the surface. The thrusters are damaged, and that Draen search party is getting closer, but they do manage to achieve altitude. They're contacted by Alcia from the Draen shuttle, who demands that Tuvok hand over Tressa, but Tuvok says they can talk about it aboard Voyager. It's an unacceptable answer for the Draen, who then orders that weapons be fired, at least to scare Tuvok and Tressa back down. Seeing what's happening, Janeway orders Tuvok to land where they can rendezvous. On the surface now, Tuvok states his intention to protect Tressa, but Alcia says the choice isn't his or hers to make. Tressa is 96 years old, and Draen's age in reverse. At the later stages of life, they revert to an innocent state and can become easily confused. This sacred ground where they believe life began is where they choose to die and have that energy released. It is the natural course of life. With Tuvok's understanding and the guidance that death is the natural conclusion of life, the two are allowed the honor of this ritual together. After their goodbye, Tuvok escorts Tressa to the cave entrance, where she enters alone, the end. Well, that was a wonderful recap, John,
0: and it kind of begs the question, should we be doing our show then in reverse so that
2: at the end of our show, we too would be innocent? <laughs> we I, we should absolutely have done that. Let's start over. Let's just do the whole thing from end to beginning. Okay. Right? Or, or Maybe Earl can do that to edit. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right, look, here's my first concern Andre, you mean you lost another submarine, or in this case, (laughs) another another shuttle is down. Come on, Voyager, get with it with the shuttles. I I hope, well, it seems like they got that one back, but man, oh man, that's rough. Fantastic Red October reference, by the way. You're welcome, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. And by the way, in that opening in the teaser, how did Bennett get thrown so far out of that shuttle? The dude can't move, right? Mm -mm. Back door is open. He is way far away, lying there on the ground. Like, did they just blow the hatch from altitude? And he's like, I'm out of here. Because, man.
0: It was strange looking back at the episode and then, okay, so the windows are intact
2: Mm -hmm. and
0: the back hatch has been lowered.
2: how did he fall out of a shuttle? <laughs> I know. Because the other option is, okay, just do that scene in the shuttle mm-hmm. where where he's lying there down. You know, I sure, you can't do – well, you, you could do everything else. But they made this choice, this odd creative choice to have him way far away from the shuttle and Tuvok leaving the shuttle to go find him. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there he is almost dying. Yeah, yeah. it was – okay. Yeah, it was um,
0: – mm. mm. Makes you go, hmm. Yeah. When Tuvok heard the rustling and he, you know, he whip-panned around with his phaser, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is, like, literally, like, fastest phaser in the Delta Quadrant. Ooh, yeah. Right? Yeah. But begs the question, if he's so fast, how did he get, like, the drop, or how did the vidians get the drop on him in the last episode?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Right? I know. I'm
0: looking for consistency. That's
2: all. Yeah. Well, I I think the consistency is that Tuvok still does many things in this episode that, from a security standpoint, are not great, but he's a great guy. So, you know. Yeah. He has the best intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did think it was a very interesting idea to keep that stasis field around Bennett's body. Like That that was just a very cool sci-fi kind of thing to do. However... Did you notice the timing on this, that he already had that device in his hand while he's there telling Bennett he's going to be okay? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, no, no, Bennett, you'll be fine. Wait, wait, what? Why am I carrying this thing that creates a field around a dead body? Uh, co- uh, coincidence. Don't worry about that at all. I know that- and then Tuvok's like, I don't know what this is. This isn't my bag, baby. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Uh, this isn't my stasis field generator, baby. <laughs> right, right.
2: And I know that we'll get there, but, you know, I had these uh, flashbacks thinking like, oh, my God, are we, are we doing and the children shall lead part two? And thankfully, uh, we didn't. And, and honestly, then I thought from the beginning, if they're going to play this for comedy, uh, Tuvok with a, a bunch of kids might be exactly what I need. But then, you know, we'll see where the story goes from there. I was
0: getting a little bit more Miri vibe, you know, a little
2: bit more mm. bonk bonk. Mm-hmm. I was
0: waiting for the kids to bonk-bonk Tuvok on the head. So. Sure, they could have done that. That would have yeah. been fine, too. Yeah. But it's kind of like the whole, like, so he has Tressa, like, in, you know, uh, trying to hold her still, and she's trying to wriggle free. And I always love that line, because you know it's kind of like a, you know it's going to happen. It's like, let me go, let me go. Well, mm-hmm. will you run if I do? <laughs> <laughs> of course she's going to run. Right, right. right. Um, but then, like, seconds later or a few scenes later. He says, there's no reason to be afraid. I will take care of you now and see you get home safely. He says it with such conviction. Mm-hmm. Like as if there were like, if there were tanks pointed at him, he would still the same, say the same thing. He like believes yeah. that much. I love Vulcan conviction like that. And he's like, yeah, We'll we'll get to Vulcan conviction in like a gesture in
2: a in a in a few. Oh more oh, we will we will. Yeah. yeah, I I have to point out kind of a, not necessarily a negative, but just okay. This, this is maybe a petty criticism, taking shortcuts with the makeup. For the aliens. I mean, look, we had an episode last season where he had pipe cleaners in the hair. And now you've got kind of the the V-shaped thing and the old stockings over the face trick. (laughs) I mean, it just seemed a little weak. But but honestly, I can understand this is a shortcut in the context that you have to do a lot of alien makeup on kids. And there are strict limits on what you can do to kids and how long you can have them in makeup. So I guess you have to scale that for adults. You just put a thing over their face and then hopefully we won't pay attention. I did like
0: the old school, almost TOS, like just makeup, makeup, right? Just Mm -hmm. kind of painted makeup on the kids. Yeah. 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 I thought that was kind of, I mean, it still worked Mm -hmm. for me. Things that don't maybe work for me as much anymore Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of the things that maybe Chakotay brings up in Uh, his native uh, indigenous tongue, the Omnahu Peznyayetza, or however you pronounce that. From the spirits of my people, it means peace in your heart, fortune Mm. in your steps. Mm -hmm. So does that come from the rubber people, (laughs) the rubber tree people, or the Mm.
2: ancestors from the moon? I'm the originators of your tribe people. Oh, that's good. Right. That's good. Yeah, we won't know. I'm not but, exactly sure. Yeah, one of those. I do have to ask, because speaking of Chakotay and his attempts at diplomacy, did it ever occur to him or Janeway way? to maybe have the drain delegates over for a drink before showing them the engine room. Yeah. Like, like what a weird cut there in the transporter room. Like, all right, here's our engines. Right. You know, Come on. <laughs> no, I mean, really? Like, let's just, let's stop by the mess hall. Let's, I know you can uh, see them walking. Yeah.
0: Like, what is that delicious smell coming from that room? Doesn't matter. Let's go to the engine.
2: Yeah. Room. Right. <laughs> right. Cause that's far more interesting than delicious food
0: and, and drink.
2: Yes, absolutely. Because look, if I'm on a ship, I want to see the galley first, then check out the engine room. Yeah. There will be many lines of uh, Tuvok wisdom in this episode, but your displeasure does not change our situation, <laughs> nor does it bring us any closer to a solution. That is one that I have to memorize and use over and over again. I love it. Yeah. Brilliant. Because yeah. he's so right. He's so mm-hmm. right. Also, I love the kid. What's a ration? And I'm just thinking, ask Miles O'Brien. He, uh, he loves those things. So I'm
0: going to encapsulate like all of my feelings about Tuvok. In, mm-hmm. in this one observation. Well, first of all, one of the greatest things I think that has ever been bestowed upon us as a gift, mm-hmm. not just to Voyager, but to Star Trek fandom in total, yeah. Yeah. the Tuvok finger. Yes. Right? A hundred percent. All right, so the scene is, and I'm surprised I didn't timestamp this, but everyone knows when it happens, one of the children is asking Tuvok something, and I think he's just fed up, and he just turns, he just whips like as fast as his face to draw, and he throws that finger up at those kids, and you can just feel it. There's like a force wave that like hits everyone like through the TV, and that's just basically Vulcan for fed up, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes, yes.
2: Tuvok's finger also is the album name for this episode. Ooh. If you're a keeping score. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Yeah. And for anybody who's not in the mission blog discord, that has now become a meme on its own. And there will be many iterations of that meme that happen. Mm. So Mm -hmm. good. So good. I I found it interesting that Cass has been coaching the EMH about diplomacy. And and again, I wonder, like, why not? Look, Cass is great. Why not somebody else? Because everybody else has given up on coaching the EMH on anything. (laughs) It's just Cass. She's going to teach him all kinds of stuff. After him blurting out her
0: advice you know to denara when he was cutting into her brain maybe she's like if i advise him i might need to stick around just in case
2: yeah yeah slow down yeah uh yeah i love tuvok working on fear control with the kids i mean i i wish i were that good um and i know that i'm not because i know that like tuvok I am terrible by speaking in rationalities to kids. So I really, I feel for Tuvok here. This is probably why I'm not a parent, because I would just do what he does. And, you know, he wins them over eventually. But, man, some of those are are cringy. I love it. And I do love, like, they ask him, what are your kids like? Well-behaved. The shade. (laughs) Just such shade. Perfect Tuvok shade. Timing is so good. And his line, I mean, this is when you use humor to its best in star trek because when they're talking about failure's journey being 348 verses and he just states matter-of-factly it may not be necessary to include the complete narrative like that's it's delivered so perfectly and it's hilarious without hitting you over the head with the jokes technically if we want to kind
0: of maybe force the issue he's saying there were he sang one verse, which left us with three hundred and forty-seven verses to go.
2: Oh my God, you're right. That's our forty-seven. Nice. Yeah. Just saying, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So Tuvok singing a lullaby to the children. Uh, it continues that fine tradition of Vulcan bards, you know, in Star mm-hmm. Trek, like Spock and Plato's stepchildren. Yeah.
2: Yep. Remember very much so. Yeah. yeah. And uh, a bit that I did not include in trivia, but. Uh, I do know that Tim Ross was concerned about the idea that he would be singing in there and they want it to sound like sappy or gimmicky. Uh, so he let Lisa Klink know and they they agreed on this thing that would be sort of somber and almost medieval sounding. Mm-hmm. They were both very pleased with it and then Lisa Klink got an ASCAP uh, royalty for writing that song. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So good, good for her. Good for them all around. There's a special effect I want to point out. I, I applaud the ambition of the CG of the shuttle launching from Voyager. It's not an effect that held up really well. But, uh, you know, at least we got it in there. Yeah.
0: I mean, I know that we needed to give, you know, the captain and Tom something to do. I just felt mm-hmm. like they spent so much time launching a shuttle. Mm-hmm. You know, they just went, let's go through the corridor, into the shuttle bay, into the shuttle, fire it up, do all the controls, launch, go through, you know, the, the launch bay doors and all this kind of stuff and go into the atmosphere and talk about stabilize. I mean, it's just, I get it. But you can just do that, like, by launching a shuttle and getting into the atmosphere.
2: You don't really have to go through the whole process, do you? They they, they spent a lot of time talking about. How they're not going to do all the pre-launch sequence. (laughs) They spent more time talking about how they're not going to do it than they probably would have spent doing the pre-launch. It's just
0: one of those things where you can see, you know, maybe in in TOS or even in the next generation, it's like, you know, take a shuttle down and find the kids. Like, okay, it's you easy to shuttle leave, get to the Mm -hmm. planet, and get back Mm -hmm. to the story. Uh, it's just one of those things. I don't know it's a nitpick, but I think it's a valid nitpick. Like, you know what, you don't sometimes this is one of those just show don't tell moments.
2: Yeah. Yeah, oh, you know? totally, totally. I, I have to say that, you know, the many things to laud about this episode, I, uh, the sincerity of those final moments of the crossada with Tuvok there for Tressa played so nicely. Speaking of moments where you show, don't tell, I thought their dialogue was really tight and efficient, and it just got us to eg- exactly that final moment that we needed to see, which was handled beautifully. Do you say tight? Like a tiger? Like a, t- like a tiger. Like tiger. Yep. Mm-hmm. I-, I have to
0: throw a little bit of levity in here because I think of that scene and it actually just starts choking me up. Yeah. Either that or yeah. it's just all the bunny hair floating around in my room. That's it.
2: You know, there's something <laughs> in my eye, John. Yeah, yeah. That, that is it. Just the bunny hair. The, yeah. the, that's all. Hey, look, I will lighten it up by saying this. And, and maybe I'm being sincere here. Maybe not. But um, I, I just I have an idea. Every now and then we like to pitch an idea retroactively to Star Trek. It helped maybe solve a lot of problems. So here's my idea this week. Shuttles have to take pattern enhancers with them all the time, or or starships have to have probes that they can drop down that will contain, a, a, like, a comms relay and a pattern enhancer, like a lifeline. Like, maybe that's something they could look into for next time.
1: Did everybody, you know... Go Before we started fleeing from the existential terror, the existential terror does not allow for rest stops.
2: We'll get right back to Innocence after a word from this week's sponsors. First up, it's Rocket Money. You no, know, John,
0: I, I hate admitting this, but I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy when it comes to, I don't know, saving money. Mm, right? Okay, that's not such a bad thing to be, yeah? Well, I mean, I, I'm old-fashioned because, you know, I'd look at my accounts and then I... I try and find the ones that I'm paying for and the ones that I'm still paying for but not really using. So there's like, you know, there's receipts and paper and notebooks and scribble like everywhere. And what (laughs) I really would have liked to have had is Mm -hmm. something that we're going to talk about right now. And that is Rocket Money because Rocket Money and maybe some people remember them as Truebill. Rocket Money is a a way to be able to find these
2: subscriptions that you don't use and they will cancel them for you. That is brilliant. So, think long and hard about this, dear audience. Think about your subscriptions, maybe the ones that you have forgotten about. Does that mean that you're wasting money? Because get this, 80% of people have subscriptions that they forgot about. That means that a significant portion of our audience and the people making this show have subscriptions that we have forgotten about. Maybe it's for an Amazon Prime account you don't use or, or Hulu or another streaming service that you just don't use. So the app to use to help you track down all those expenses, well – to help you no longer waste money on subscriptions that you don't use you've heard of it that's right it's rocket money and as norman just said formerly called true bill so do you know how much your subscriptions actually cost most americans think that they spend about 80 bucks a month on subscriptions the actual cost closer to two hundred dollars or more Yes. So you, yes, you, you could be wasting hundreds of dollars each month on subscriptions that you don't even know about. And the app that we like to use to take care of all of that is Rocket Money. So the app shows you all of your subscriptions
0: all in one place and then cancels whatever you don't want or whatever you're not using anymore. So Rocket Money can find even those subscriptions that you didn't know you were paying for. You may even find out that you've been double charged for a subscription. I mean, this is your money. You know, this is this is what you have earned. You have worked hard for it and you should save as much of it as possible or don't waste any of it if you can't if you can possibly can help it. So, to cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel on the app and then Rocket
2: Money takes care of the rest. So, get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com/missionlog. Seriously, it could save you hundreds of dollars a year. That's rocketmoney.com/missionlog. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com/missionlog. Hey, Norman, it is that time of the year. It's holiday time, right? And, right. And, you know, yeah, and maybe you or I, maybe we sit down and watch some classic Christmas movies or, you know, Thanksgiving parades or heartwarming holiday rom-coms or maybe, just maybe you're tired of those <laughs> because i don't i know that i can watch some of those and that i'm fed up that i've done and i need to move on to something else and that's why this holiday season i've decided to uh, well you know give myself and give others the gift of expressvpn.com and you may ask yourself well, why is that a gift that has something to do with watching holiday movies or not well it's because expressvpn is an app that lets you change your online location and then this magical thing happens. That lets you trick Netflix and other streaming platforms into giving you a whole new library of content. Because if you didn't know it, those streaming platforms have different shows in every country.
0: So not to shame myself or to out myself here, John, on the show, <laughs> but it's so okay. It's, so this so this week, okay, so I've been using ExpressVPN to binge, uh, let's just say, a, a variety of, oh, what do you call them? Um those, those Marks of the Hall shows. Oh, you know? yes. I'm, just, okay, I'm, I'm being yes. you know fancy mm-hmm. with my wording here, but those shows, the ones where you curl up with a blanket mm-hmm. and uh, eat mm-hmm. ridiculous amounts of, I don't know, like, you know, peppermint bark and, you know, with <laughs> uh, like super, super sweet cocoa, those yeah. kind of shows, you know? So sure. That's sure. what I like. I'm sure many of you out there like that as well. Yep. Hit me up later. Let me know. <laughs> So using ExpressVPN is very simple to do. You fire up the ExpressVPN app on your computer or on your mobile device, and you can change your location and refresh whichever streaming platform that you're using, like Netflix, and that's it. Uh, ExpressVPN lets you choose from almost 100 different countries. So just imagine all the, the streaming libraries that you can go through. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN helps you access more content on all the streaming services like Disney+, Plus,
2: BBC iPlayer, and YouTube, just uh, to mention a few. And actually, you named uh, the one that I use most frequently. That's BBC iPlayer. I love getting all of that content from the BBC that I would not otherwise be able to see here. Now, I've tried some other VPNs in the past, and honestly, they're slow. Um, But the reason that I love and you, Norm, love and use ExpressVPN is that it's fast and it's easy there's not any buffering or lag and the show stream in hd quality so look if you're well you may be tired of the cheesy holiday shows or not but regardless this holiday season gift yourself a brand new library of content go to expressvpn.com slash mission log right now and you can get an extra three months of expressvpn for free that's expressvpn.com slash mission log ExpressVPN.com slash mission log to learn more. All right, Norman, I mentioned it in uh, earlier parts of the show here and in trivia because that, that was a clear influence on the script that we had, and that is the F. Scott Fitzgerald short story, uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, of course, made into a movie. You've probably seen the movie mm-hmm. as well. But I, I really – you can see where Fitzgerald was coming from and how this could show up in other science fiction stories as well that – we play with the idea of aging as reverting back to a childhood state or maybe more to the point of vulnerable state. I, I think that's the metaphor, the parallel that, that they're actually playing with here. And I, I really appreciate it in a story like Benjamin Button, or like I said, it, it's a, an idea that's been used before. But I think it was such a a sweet way of looking at Really what these kids are going through is that, you know, uh, Alcia says that they're confused. And we think about sometimes as people do live longer and age longer and maybe lose some of their mental faculties that it puts them back into this vulnerable state as if they were toddlers, as if they were kids who needed to be watched after. I don't have much beyond just that as an observation, but I think it was a strong choice to uh, to use that as part of the influence for this episode. I found it really interesting that in
0: this uh, in the plan to kind of like subvert our expectations, you know, for this episode, mm. that the Drayan elders, you know, the ones that that met with Janeway in uh, the first prelate. Yes, yes. How serious she was and how mm-hmm. uh, dedicated to preserving the traditions of their culture um, that has uh, refuted technology and what technology has done to their culture. I think that plays into a lot of, uh, you know, maybe like where we see these children uh, end up because. This tech, this culture that's devoid of uh, the technology that has – that at, at one point in time put their society on the brink of disaster, this is mm-hmm. the kind of technology that maybe uh, could have united them or kept them informed or kept them – at least uh, in in a way where uh, they weren't as confused. Like maybe there were medical technologies that would have helped these children or these elders, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, gracefully slide into these final days of their existence. And because we're essentially this planet, you know, if we want to take a look at like the real world analogy of this planet, this planet is essentially like a nursing home or hospice, Mm -hmm. right, where Mm -hmm. uh, these children or these elders can live out their final days with uh, a certain sense of dignity.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I. Well, you mentioned. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of ideas there that really struck me, and uh, the first one is that there's so much that we don't know about the history of this planet's relationship with science and technology. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's better that we don't. But I'm also picturing in my head. You know, the novelization that digs <laughs> really deeply into that, because at least on the first viewing of this episode. The final ritual, the the whole show takes this very dark turn, and I'm very interested in that, well, partly as a through line for Voyager, because Voyager, I think more so than some of the other series that we've tackled so far, has this through line about death, you know, we talked glowingly about emanations, how that was such an interesting way to discuss and approach death. And maybe we didn't get all out of that episode that we wanted, but there's really an attempt to go there and take on this heavy topic. And then you take on this added layer of belief or non belief Tuvok's doubt. About the Catra, I thought that was such fair ground for exploration. You assume that he's heard about a guy like Spock, but even then, where does the logical Vulcan mind go and just say, like, okay, well, wait—is this a mechanical thing, a spiritual thing? What is this? Do I actually believe what happened? We are starting with a clone, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know how how do I rationalize? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here for a second, John, Mm -hmm. because you you
0: bring up this great point about the katra. And that's something that it's hard to reconcile with all Vulcans, say, because now, because Mm. Tuvok's admission of, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about that. And you would think on Vulcan, that's part of their cultural heritage, understanding the power of the Katra and this eternal soul that, you know, can be transferred from, like, say, one spiritual essence to another or one, you know, vessel to another to find its final resting place. But the other thing, which is really Mm -hmm. interesting, is uh, we've had a couple of uh, examples of Tuvok and his relationship with his family and his children, right? Mm -hmm. So how does Mm -hmm. love fall into the balance of a culture that has been, or at least for several of the people that we know, several of the Vulcans Mm -hmm. that we know, have dedicated their lives to, uh, I wouldn't say uh, ignore their emotions, but... But harness them in a way that they need to be used when they need to be used, you know, so it's not like the Vulcans completely ignore what they are. And I think that they lean into them sometimes when they have to. But for the most part, how do you not express love for your children or your (laughs) wife when that is the ultimate act, some say, of that love having children
2: with the one that you love? We'll, we'll see that. That's what's so interesting to parallel. Like, I can't think of anybody other than Tuvok being the centerpiece of this episode, because you have this incredible parallel of these these competing, uh, not not always contradictory, but these competing factors of well, you have belief, you have ritual. And you have cultural context, you know. So, yeah, just taking it on the the Vulcan end, okay, you have the cultural context of they share this love – well, love may not be the right word – this adherence to logic. Mm -hmm. And they have decided, okay, we're going to raise everybody who is Vulcan in this cultural context where we prize logic above all else. Even though there are these simmering emotions underneath and sometimes very strong emotions underneath. And why do they do that? Well, okay, they have certain rituals to uh, not enforce, but at least to uh, enhance that. You know, uh, uh, to to sort of uh, keep everybody on the same page. And then there's the underlying belief, you know, the underlying belief that logic is a superior way to live one's life, to the suppression of emotion. Because if they don't, if they don't, then watch out their whole society will fall apart. Sure, right. Okay. Now, bring that to drea mm-hmm. uh, drea too, that bring that whole thing where okay they 've been through this thing that happened generations ago, where their civilization, civilization almost went extinct because whatever happened they couldn 't control themselves, their use of science, etc, drove them to a point that they were fighting with each other, so they had to form a set of rituals around these. Beliefs that they would only lead down one destructive path if they followed that, or if they took another turn and decided to create this whole other cultural context, that's what would allow them to survive. But then, just as Vulcans may actually love each other and show love and express love in their own way, well, you come back to these kids, the elders who are Dreans, they want to live. Okay, but their ritual is dictated by their cultural tradition. This belief is enforced Mm -hmm. from the time that they are very young, i.e. very old. And it's so interesting to me that we get these hints about the Dreyan Reformation. Again, not a lot of detail, but maybe just enough. And you have to wonder, was this a reasonable social contract? to keep people of their world from tearing each other apart? Or was this some kind of maybe nefarious mind slash population control? Just a side like, no, 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 we're, we're going to reboot our society and say, okay, y- you have to die around this age because we're not able or willing to take care of you anymore. Th- then this mm. brings up this whole other question about what is Voyager's claim on the morality of the situation? You know, I, it does, I I think we get to this very interesting end where Voyager's position is we don't have any say on that and they honor their traditions. Had the context been any different, do they have any reason or any validity to come in and say, oh, no, 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 but, but these kids don't want to die. You've only told them that they want to die
0: right it 's a a fixed cultural pattern and we 've seen that happen in mm-hmm. Star Trek before, and there's something that I wanted to touch on about uh, the Dran society because I think that this was almost part of my morals, meanings, and messages, but I think it was mm. uh, it fit like a better uh, better context here like in our discussion points so Alcia, the first prelate, says, Our ancestors were brilliant scientists and engineers. They were continually developing better, smarter, more efficient machines until technology became more important than the people. I believe mm-hmm. our society would have self-destructed if it weren't for the Reformation, and it turns out it feels like the Reformation turns them into kind of like medieval world planet
2: that usually becomes like <laughs> tradition of Star <laughs> right, Trek, right? Right, right. They still have spaceships. They but, do. But, yes, it, yeah, but yeah. Uh, we're
0: we're, gonna, we're going to we're going to not put as much um, you know as stock faith in technology, you know, yeah, as you right, know as right. the uh, driving force of our society. But kind of like take away, uh, take a look at how we are with that particular premise now as our own Mm -hmm. society. So we may be enjoying the peak of our own technological sophistication as the human race. Mm. But maybe the Durans ask this. Maybe they asked, has it really improved us overall as a society or a species? Or has it only improved and addressed our own individual comforts? not the comforts of a species overall like technology. And I think that we can all accept this, that technology has automated so much of what we do and who we are and how we identify ourselves with the speed of our consumerism that, we don't really have as much social interaction anymore. And maybe that's what the drains were trying to rebel against in this reformation. Like with, in order for us to save ourselves as a society, we have to return to socially interacting with ourselves, to caring about ourselves and one another. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I had this, uh, interaction, this social interaction with a woman standing in line when I was waiting to get my Turkey dinner for Thanksgiving, you know, I was Mm -hmm. picking up the, Mm -hmm. a pre-prepared, you know, meal. And yeah. she was looking at a chalkboard, the chalkboard had cursive on it. And then she, you know, turns around and, you know, with, you know, it's kind of like killing time, uh, we struck a conversation. She goes, can you believe that there are children out there that can't even read cursive anymore? And I'm like, I can. And oh, she's like, and, and, and she yeah. really goes down this road of, well, I can't believe this. And what well, I can't believe that, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, of course what she was saying, but the bottom line is I said that it's not their fault. And she looked at me like yeah. she like she got red in the face. Like, what do you mean? It's not their fault. I'm like, children only learn what they're taught, and if right. they're not taught this yeah. skill set yeah. wherever they're having their higher education, they're not going to learn it. Right? Yeah. I mean, let me ask. Yeah. And then I asked her, I'm like, do you know how to shoe a horse?
1: <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, do you Judge. know? Do you know how yeah. to
0: use like? Um, you know. The old style way of like washing clothes, you know, with a washtub basin, Mm -hmm. you know, and board. Mm -hmm. You don't know that because it's out of practice. It's out of technology has reduced that to being something of the past. So, right. It's not anyone's fault that you don't learn something because technology has already pushed so many other ways of learning more efficiently forward than any other the traditions of the past. And I think that's what happened in the Drain culture.
2: That's interesting. And by the way, not, not to take it on a total tangent, but uh, I just read an article not that long ago about the disuse of cursive writing. And we're probably in... You know, the last generation that was taught that in the school, mm-hmm. um, and even then I never use it, and I have a hard time reading it. But then I think, okay, now we have technologies, though, that not only are better at reading – uh, cursive, but uh, can read lost, well, not entirely lost, but can translate other languages. Mm-hmm. you know I can 't speak Latin, but I can point my phone at something, and it can give me a translation of any language that I want into a language that I can read right, but it 's not pushing so. the culture
0: forward it's pushing the technology forward. So, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But but the information isn't lost. Sure, and I think that that's what's critical about that. Mm-hmm. I want to switch gears here for a minute because I think this is such a, a, a provocative part of this story, and um, I, I kept coming back to it uh, sometimes with. Horror, <laughs> and, and sometimes with great appreciation, and that is uh, that's really the the beautiful part about the script. The body is not the true self, and this is what really excites Alcia about the EMH. And I thought using Plato was such an interesting way of looking at the EMH. You know, we we ask ourselves many times on the show, well, wait, what are the limits of the EMH? What can he do? Mm-hmm. Who is he? You know, using finger quotes around that. But just saying that this is a physical form of an idea, I think is at least one way of wrapping your head around it. But here's where I'm going to part ways with this interpretation of platonic philosophy, because I do think that it drives a darker side of the Drayan culture and their death ritual. If our bodies are just reflections of Some ethereal ideal, the imperfect meat of a spiritual perfection, then how can they not see the body as something that is disposable? It, it, it's, you know, it's an empty promise that devalues the physical body. So, you know, I'm sorry, whether it's turning off the EMH's computer or starving the brain of oxygen, that's the mind and the body gone at the same time. I, I, I have a problem with that as a guiding philosophy, maybe because then I look at the Dreyans and I think, okay, but how hard did they try? How hard did they work to try to come up with a solution where they don't just send people away to a moon to die. Let's say that Tressa is, by our equivalent, 12 years old. Is that another 5, 7, 8, 10 years of valuable life that she has that could be productive? I don't know. Or is there something that Dre and Science come up with to extend their health span beyond their
0: lifespan. Yeah, I, I think we're missing maybe a few key ingredients, again, with uh, maybe some additional scenes that could have been in place, you know, or you could have used uh, some of that shuttlecraft launch sequence exposition and told a little mm. bit more mm-hmm. story where, again, this refusal to live underneath the influence of technology in a way has caused a schism in their, mm. so- schism. In yep. their society mm-hmm. where some people believe that, the body is not the true self or technology is the truth of their existence. And that's where probably the uh, their civil war came into play.
2: Uh, Alcia has this chilling line too, chilling to me. Our connection to a higher plane is more important than our attachment to this brief existence, however real it may seem. And I just want to say, Alcia, that's the only reality you've got. That's the only reality that you are promised right now because you don't oh, – once your energy disperses into the nothingness, you actually don't know what's there. And it just seems like – I, I sort of appreciate the ritual aspect of it. I appreciate the cultural heritage aspect of it. But I also want to say – I look at this exchange between Tuvok and Tressa. Tuvok says, there is more in each of us than science has yet explained. Yeah, True. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that then you can replace that unexplained thing with an explanation that is just comforting or interesting or culturally relevant to you. Tressa comes back and says, I know we should have more faith. It's wrong to be afraid of death. And I gonna say, Tressa, it's not wrong to be afraid of that. It's not wrong to have anxiety and worry and concern about the unknown. And at that point, it is unknown. It is not a thing that just gets replaced with whatever the comforting belief may be.
1: The good news. Starfleet shuttles now have airbags. The bad news. They work about as well as the exploding consoles. Just ask Ensign Bennett.
0: You know, sometimes, John, uh, some of these episodes... They start light mm. and heavy, and some start heavy and end heavy. Mm. And I think this is one of those episodes where we have a lot to talk about. There's a lot to think about. And uh, let's see if
2: it holds up to our mission log mission statement. Yeah. I, You know, last week I said something about that being an episode that you could just plug into any series from tos onward and that was not an insult at all it it, it means that you know we're telling these types of stories that our our characters have room to play and we believe it you know just imagine spock with a bunch of kids in this situation and then imagine kirk with the diplomatic crisis that's happening or imagine data and Picard in those roles. It totally works. And that said, I'm really glad that we got what we got here because we just had a discussion about how specifically Tuvok's family experience and his Vulcan background informed and paralleled what we were learning about the drains and how those cultures maybe, again, were parallel or clashed, and how we as the audience got to be, well, a little put off by these rituals, but then come to a place of at least somewhat understanding with what was happening, even if we don't fully agree. This episode kept revealing itself to me the more I watched it. It was familiar and fun in the places that it needed to be. But at the end of the day, we got an episode that was really about some big ideas. And and more importantly, we have had a long run of episodes where Tuvok is just there in this functional role. But Tuvok's strength is when we actually get to see him as a person. And we get to mm-hmm. dig into his thoughts, his feelings, and yes, we know he has feelings, his family life, and this, for lack of a better word, humanity that comes out When dealing with a situation like this, I thought this had all the great hallmarks where this doesn't need to be an effects heavy or an action heavy show. It just needed to put the characters in an interesting situation and let that play out and let us sit with the reality, the truths of what was going on there and allowed us to play around with these heavy ideas again in the tradition of what gene roddenberry wanted to do slip in a few heavy ideas from time to time and this episode does it so i think this is one of those that's kind of like the sleeper hit you may yeah. look at it on the surface and just go like oh yeah it's the one with tuvok and the children watch it again then watch it again and then mm-hmm. get back to me because there's a lot more going on here yeah how about yeah. you well, you know, I, I'm glad that you phrased it that way because when
0: we look uh, whether or not these episodes hold up, sometimes in our first viewings, they they don't
2: mm-hmm.
0: because they don't they don't uh, I guess they don't settle uh, sometimes in just one viewing, and we don't see the nuances in just one viewing. But one of the things I love about the mission log format and what we do. Because we need to watch these episodes multiple times for the observations mm-hmm. and for the discussion points, and now for the understanding of if they hold up over time or finally getting to our morals, meanings, and messages, we find things that we don't see automatically and we mm-hmm. don't see initially. And that's what I loved about this episode. This episode just kept getting better the more times I watched it. And that it felt very much like an original series episode Mm -hmm. or an early next generation episode where you're right. You're, you have a couple of set changes, but most of the strength comes from the principal actors. And especially in this episode from Tim Ross, you know, this is just one of those occasions where when you let an actor act, the brilliance that comes out is just astonishing. You're like, where has this been this entire time you see like bits and pieces of it like was it in meld you know when he was uh, incarcerated in the force field you saw what he could do and he flexed pretty hard but that was just momentary you know on occasion but in this episode you saw a lot of tenderness you saw a lot of warmth you saw a lot of Feelings. You saw a lot of things that are very much, a, you know, in opposition of what it means to be Vulcan. Even though that he was trying to teach these kids discipline, he did it with such care, right? And he did it with such parental reverence, you know, to what it means to be, you know, someone who's going to help protect children. Now, Papa Bear. Yeah. You know, you know it's
2: Bear funny for, for all the time we've ever spent on Mission Log talking about how bad a father Sarek is, how bad a father uh, <laughs> Worf is. And mm-hmm. look, Cisco, definitely positive father role model, but even then, even then, there, there's some weaknesses there. He did not stick the landing on it. He did one. not. He did not. I feel like Tuvok is quickly ascending to my favorite in Star Trek Fathers. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, I mean, Tiffany Taubman and
0: mm-hmm. and Tim were just magical towards the end. I think that all the performances were very strong. But something that you brought up, John, touched on a little bit, and, and this is in my notes, and I'm glad that we saw both of the, our experiences this way. There's been an interesting grouping of episodes recently that have consistently looked at some of the most extreme perspectives about life and death. Right. Mm. So let's take a look at life signs. Only a few episodes ago, the doctor took these extreme measures to save Dinara and granted her temporary immortality, Mm. you know, which almost made her do a certain thing. In Death Wish, Quinn's desire to remove himself, i.e. suicide, Mm -hmm. from the Q continuum shook the entire continuum out of their complacency just to stop him from doing it. Yeah. So, and then now in this episode, we have this incredible subversion of expectations where we believe that these children are helpless, but it's just because of their confusion and their quote unquote mental innocence. Yeah. That allows us to go on this journey with Tuvok and see where at least Tressa ends up and how we were like, okay. That was unexpected, and this is a far, you know, more, uh, I guess, realistic and tangible way of understanding what, like, our elderly are going through and how, you know, we react and uh, our relationship with that. I never really gave that credit. I never really gave Voyager credit for being able to do that in a serialized way because it's not particularly, quote-unquote, serialized, but the themes kind of are.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's just it. Yeah, it's an episodic series, and you and I get frustrated when uh, okay, it's the reset button, and we're you know we're just back to planet of the week journey of the week. What if they blew up a shuttle? We'll have another one next week. But there's this heaviness. There's this theme of exploring death that has come with so many of these very good episodes. And and this one right there among them, Voyager has had this really nice streak here in the second half of season two, which has been, uh, well, for lack of a better word, fascinating to watch. So Mm -hmm. how about I, I take it that means that the episode holds up for you. <laughs> yeah. And it
0: did, again, More, the more and more and more I, so I watched it, you know, it, yeah. it really did. Yeah.
2: What about yeah. Uh, morals, meanings, messages? What do we take away from it?
0: Well, I, I found this interesting. Now, I wanted to go earlier with kind of like this understanding of technology like versus like human interconnection and mm-hmm. how it was lost in the Drayen culture. That's something that I was like, okay, I'm almost there. But I really loved what Janeway said in the course of all of this, and especially at the end, where I think that she was almost speaking for us as the audience, where we finally understood like what was happening with these children, and then we finally understood like how the Drans and or how Alcia they um, they also didn't communicate their intent in the in the clearest way to create this relationship with us. Yeah. Right. So Janeway said, "I hope you can accept my sincere apologies for disturbing your traditions." And then Alcia says, perhaps we have each misjudged the other, Captain. And then Janeway said, and this is this is as fine of a message as Star Trek can promote. I would hate to let that ruin any possibility of friendship between our people. So that in and of itself is at the what the very heart of Star Trek has always been about. Being able to come together and resolve our differences through discussion. Yeah. And sharing information and overcoming misunderstandings and misinformation by simply talking to each other. That's all it takes is just when when you have that moment, when the adrenaline's low, when the energy has dissipated through the room, and you have the ability to find and seize that moment where you can talk and literally understand every single finer point without, and maybe this is the two box point, without the influence of emotion to the logic, you might be able to actually do something and connect.
2: I'm so glad that that was your takeaway. That actually plays in very well to my first uh, observation here for the Morals, Meanings, Messages, because I, I was thinking about how this show, this episode, is about these perceptions and perspectives culturally that never quite align because they don't even know yet to have the conversation about what's happening you know to Janeway it's like look here's just another culture we have to negotiate to get what we want and hopefully you know not leave with another enemy on our hands and then here's Tuvok I need to take care of these kids and here's these kids we're afraid we need somebody to take care of but they they keep missing each other in what they actually need to explain Mm -hmm. to have a mutual understanding and I love that this is playing with these shifting cultural perspectives. So think about it. To the kids, there is no other concept, there's no other way they have to think about growing old and facing death than what they know. How, How could they not? This is all that they know. To Tuvok, unless there is some other culture and, you know, Vulcan contact history that actually does this, There's no other way than what he knows about the cycle of life, birth and growing old and death. They all, everybody in this episode has to reset their understanding and expectation in order to find that common ground. And yeah, the Dreans were not forthcoming when they very much could have been. The kids are the innocents in this because... They, they simply don't know. They're, they're, they don't have the mental faca- faculty at this point to discuss it. Mm-hmm. But this is all a matter of that communication, being able to set each other on their own kind of cultural and philosophical expectations. We got there a little bit with the EMH, but then we needed to go a step further for them to hopefully avoid the, the conflict that they had. But what I love about this episode, I think what's most compelling to me is the place that it occupies in this very difficult conversation. How do we have, and you were just hitting on it, how do we have these deep, important conversations about belief and truth while respecting those cultural traditions? Tuvok is able to engage with these kids about heavy concepts like death and belief and doubt, but no other Drayan will be aware of that conversation because the kids are resigned to their fate. And the Drayans have shut off all possibility of having their beliefs challenged until another thing like this, an unaccounted for interruption, comes along to shake them up. So there's a little bit of a condemnation of their very isolationist tactic there. But mm-hmm. not to belittle, like, the intelligence of the children,
0: of children in general, especially these children. But mm-hmm. do you think that they actually understood more of what Tuvok was telling them because they were already elderly?
2: Mm. I don't know. I, I'm going to go back to those lines about them reverting to a stage of innocence and being confused that maybe mm-hmm. truly their brains develop or or – Undevelop to a point that they they don't maybe they can't hold those concepts hmm. the way that uh, that an adult would huh. maybe okay. maybe not you know yeah. or yeah. I don't know it's interesting speculation now something that I love in this script is just all the wisdom that we get from Tuvok and I, I quoted a few before and I want to leave you with a few a few others that I just thought were awesome we often fear what we do not understand our best defense is knowledge. of the time, yes, Tuvok, well said. And also, Vulcans consider death to be the completion of a journey. There is nothing to fear. I like how he phrased that. And then he says, I realize it may frighten you, but you must hear the truth. And what he's talking about there is this, not just the truth of what happened in that cave, but the existential truth. Of what's going on in their situation so I'll supplement that with one of my favorite Carl Sagan quotes that I have shared on this very podcast before but it's worth sharing again it is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion however satisfying and reassuring Mission Log is produced by
0: Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit
2: trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Thaw.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Everyone should have known better than to visit a planet with a dielectric field. I mean, any field that starts with die, seems like bad news.